Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. My name is Trevor Bohm and I will be your host. Every week or so, I try to get myself a fascinating human on the mic for you, someone who looks at the civilized world just like you do and says no thank you. Someone who wants to break some rules, to lead, and to bring their unique vision into the world. Someone for whom the status quo simply will not do. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. Please dive in. Hey folks, welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. This is Traver Bohm, your host. If you're new to the podcast, welcome aboard. Please share with some friends. If you are a returning listener, thank you so much for all of your support and all of your love along the way. I think we are coming up on the 200th episode, which is mind-boggling because this was a project uh, I actually didn't even want to do, but now have fallen head over heels in love with. Today, I have a fascinating guy coming in, you guys. This is His name is Troy Love. He's the author of the book, Finding Peace, and also the author of the book, A Year of Self-Love. And this guy, though, he's not fluffy. Like you hear those two titles and like, great, he's some like hippie fruitcake. He's not. He's a counselor. He's a therapist. He's, he's worked with thousands of people on addiction, trauma, all the things. And I use this opportunity to just pick his brain on all things addiction, trauma, attachment, and because it was part of his story on porn and his relationship with it, his addiction to it. And we, we dive into men and our addiction to porn or men and our challenge with porn. But listen, if you're right now, you're like, oh man, I don't really have an issue with porn or I don't care about porn. Listen to this anyway, because we're talking about a fundamental problem in the country, the numbing of pain, right? The numbing of pain. And, and guess what? We're all doing it, myself included, especially now in the midst of you know, the pandemic or whatever we want to call where we're at. This is September, 2021 in the middle of this fucking shit show that currently is American society. We're numbing. And so Troy dives into attachment patterns, how we can heal from our pain, how we can recognize when we have an addiction and really lays some great framework and foundation to take away the shame. We talk about shame, you guys. There's a reason that this podcast or the title has shame in it. We dive into it head first. So no matter where you are, no matter who you are, this is a really important episode to understand how you tick and what makes you tick. Troy Love is an amazing, amazing guest, and I know you're going to get a ton out of this. So if it resonates with you, please go to iTunes, go to Spotify, go to wherever you listen, leave a positive review. They really, really help. The podcast has grown so freaking much in the past year. So thank you for doing that. And as always, this episode is brought to you by Zen Squatch. Please go check them out. Z-E-N-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H. These guys have a fantastic mission, which mirrors mine, which is essentially to get people into their bodies, get people meditating, get people moving get people healthy, get people kicking ass in the world. Please go check them out. Use the code uncivilized to get a fat discount. And also brought to you by my good friends at Cured Nutrition, have the best CBD products on the market. Go check them out at curednutrition.com forward slash uncivilized and use the code uncivilized for a discount. I know you guys have done this. I see you tagging me in pictures with their products, with Zen Squatch products, with Cured products. Please keep doing that. It helps the sponsors know Guess what? You know who the sponsors are? They're good people who believe in me. 
So I appreciate you guys supporting them. All right, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Troy Love. Troy Love, welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. This is truly a pleasure. Uh, if you wouldn't mind telling everybody here who may not know you, I'm not going to ask you the, the typical American question of what do you do or, or, or what do you do for work, but what's got you inspired right now, if I can ask you that? Ooh, thanks, Trevor. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting as we were talking just in the little interaction and you said that this is a men's audience. Mm. What inspires me a lot is helping men become better men. Mm. helping men tap into their true self, yeah. their true identity, and watching them change their world when they tap into that. I, I like I like work, working with women. A lot of the clients I have are women. But man, when I watch a man take hold of his life and embrace his truth, mm it's amazing to watch that work. So that fires me up. Good. You're in the right place, man. Uh, <laughs> and, and so you've been doing this work essentially for, for what, over 20 years now? Yes. Yes. Is, is um, this one-on-one -on -one counseling? Can you tell us just a little bit of the, the background that brings you to today? Sure. I didn't actually know what I wanted to be when I was growing up. I popped around from class to class. I, I thought I wanted to be an English professor for a while until I sat in a 7 a.m. old English class with a guy who probably was from the 1800s. Yeah. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to pass this class. <laughs> Somehow or other, I, I ended up in a social work 101 class and mm. it just resonated with me, man. And um, as I was sitting there and my uh, listening to how social work helps people it started to resonate with me in ways that I didn't understand why it was resonating with me until much later on when I was getting my master's degree and part of my internship was sitting in a drug and alcohol rehab facility as an intern. I'm about 24 years old. I'd never done drugs. I'd never drank before. I'm, I'm sitting there terrified. I'm, I'm concerned about what these addicts are going to think of me. I've never worked with <laughs> with uh, adults before. I've mm. done a lot of work with teenagers, but I've never worked with with adults. And I'm like, I'm petrified. I'm literally frozen. I'm like looking at the old drug and alcohol posters that have been there mm. since 1970, the coffee stains on the floor. And then they began to tell their stories mm. um, about being wounded, being rejected, abandoned, betrayed, abused, and how that led to why they were using their particular drug of choice. Yeah. And I realized that they were telling my story, that although I wasn't addicted to drugs, I was addicted to porn, mm -hmm. and I didn't even know that was a thing back in the day. Mm -hmm. And that really pushed me on the journey of how do I heal and how do I help other people? Mm -hmm. So that really was the gateway to the work that I do. And I've been doing it now for over 20 years, trying to help people find their, their truth and, and live it. Beautiful. Thank you just for being that honest as well. This is, I, I made a note to talk about porn because man, is that the behind the scenes addiction? And, and I've said this to guys, 
Like if you show up to work reeking of alcohol, they're going to, they're going to send you home. Absolutely. Show up with a cloud of dope over your head. They're going to send you home. If you you spent the eight hours that morning up looking at porn, nobody's going to know. I'd love to get to that in in a second of a a prior question. Can you define social work for the audience who thinks, what is this guy? CPS? (laughs) Thank you for asking. Yeah. Yeah, Everybody thinks that social workers come and steal your children. (laughs) (laughs) Wait. We don't do that. Um, <laughs> it's it's interesting when we look at uh, people ask me, especially in the when they want to like they're trying to figure out whether they want to be a psychologist or a counselor or a social worker or whatever. I say, look, each one of them have their own modality, their own framework. Hmm. Social workers come from a systems perspective. Um, counselors come from a like a psychology perspective. Each one has their own paradigm, but. Social workers really are looking at the person in their various systems, their families, the the legal system, the transportation system, the uh, man, the money system, whatever, the economic systems, and how the person interacts and is changed by each one of those systems. Mm-hmm. And so we, it's that paradigm that we operate by that may be different than the psychologist who's looking at like, here, take these tests, and then we're gonna be able to kind of tell you what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything against psychologists. Um, It's just a different way of looking at things. So it's the social workers, just they approach things differently. We oftentimes are doing very similar jobs, but the Mm -hmm. the whole thing is, how can I help you operate better in your system? And what can I do to connect you with the resources so that you can thrive in your life? So that's really what social work is all about, is connecting you with the resources to help you thrive in your life. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. I, have, I have so many different questions. Uh, and I should probably preface this by telling you, I actually get to the question I want to ask by fumbling through a couple questions first. Oh, good. Uh, so it's, good. it's that kind of interview. <laughs> From your perspective, I just, God, I, I can't not take this opportunity. How, if we look at struggle right now, this is 2021, we're in September. It feels like the vast majority of the population is in some form of struggle. Mm. And that we're not even talking about the extreme ends of homelessness on the rise, addiction mm. on the rise, mental health challenges on the rise. So if we take the, the, the tip of the iceberg and, and move it to the side and just say, hey, let's talk about the bulk. In your opinion, and I know I'm asking you a big question, Troy, why are people struggling right now? Well, because we're wired for connection, physically, socially, neurologically, emotionally, sexually, we are wired for connection. And when March 2020 hit and everything was shut down, that connection was severed for so many of us. And we had to shift overnight to this, the way we're doing it right now, Zoom, right? Um, Purely two-dimensional way of working and we weren't prepared for it. Mm. And I mean, there's a lot of science that has backed up. We lose so much just in doing Zoom. I, I had a client that I've been seeing in Zoom for over a year and a half who I actually met in person last week. And she's like, it is so different. 
mm-hmm. seeing you in person. I'm like, yeah, it is. Like I pick up on body language. I pick up on other things that I couldn't pick up on before. Sure. So that disconnection, I think, has played a significant role and is part of the reason why um, there have been a significant, I can't quote the exact numbers, but it's more than 50% higher number of teenagers in the emergency room with suicidal ideation, um, higher rates of uh, depression and anxiety than ever before. And it's because we were cut off from what we normally were able to use as connection to deal with the regular pressures of life. Yeah, all that other stuff existed before, but uh, overnight it was cut off. Yeah. Yeah, my heart breaks for teenagers. Thinking about my own teenage years where mm-hmm. it was every moment of every day I wanted to spend with my friends. Absolutely. As soon as swim practice was over, I drove to my friend's house and spent the oh, evening there. You know, Saturdays and Sundays at my friend's houses. Uh, I, I feel so cha- I feel so bad for those kids. Can you speak a little bit, if we could just switch gears before we get, again, diving into porn, when you heard addict stories, was there a light bulb that went off that said, holy shit, we are approaching this completely ass backwards? Or was there, okay, we're managing it in the best way we can, but we can do it better. Was there a dichotomy between the two? So there's probably a more of a dichotomy between the two. So I was living in Pittsburgh, going to school and and learning the traditional way that we treat addiction, you know, 12 step and all of that, which I'm, it works for a lot of people, you know, that connection and de-shaming and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, but then I moved as you identified to the hottest, well, one of the hottest places on earth, (laughs) Yuma, Arizona, right? where it's like 150 degrees every day during the summer um, at night right in the shade <laughs> it was 80 it was 88 degrees this morning at five o'clock when i was oh, walking that's, my dogs my that's absurd. <laughs> um but when we when i moved here is very rural i mean there was 100 100,000 people here but it was very rural and there wasn't any resources for yeah. me in dealing with sex addiction and they definitely overlapped. There was AA meetings and those kind of things, but there wasn't any resources for for that. And so I had to kind of explore mm. how do I heal this and treat this on my own. It was yeah. well before I knew that there were specialists to to sure. deal with that kind of stuff. And what I really started to realize is that this is a this is an attachment issue, whether it's drugs or whether it's alcohol or whether it's food yeah. or whether it's sex. It's all attachment related. Mm -hmm. And as I started to realize that um, and putting kind of my own model together of how I heal from those, I call them attachment wounds, how I heal from those wounds myself, I began to teach that to my clients and it really resonated with them. And so it it kind of dovetails with some of the work that traditionally we use in treating addiction but there's very much this, and the science is now starting to back it up, this this absolute need to be connected um, as part of the recovery journey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about willpower, and it's not about, you know, um, 
sobriety so much as it is like the saying is addiction isn't about being sober it's about having connection mm -hmm. and learning that um was really an important piece for me yeah i've had if you know the name dewey freeman i've had him on the podcast a couple of times and he was the first one to explain to me that people with an addiction are attached to that substance no matter what the substance may be we could interchange it but really in his mind, and I hope I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he'd say, mm -hmm. that it is an attachment issue. Let's dive into porn attachment addiction on that front if you're open to sure. it. Sure, let's and do it. The first question I want to ask, because I get asked this a lot, and I'm not sure how to quite answer it, is, is a porn addiction and a sex addiction the same thing? Or are they kind of like overlaps of that Venn diagram and, and in the middle? Right? Is there a porn addict who's not a sex addict? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, you, think, you think about a drug addict and they may have a particular drug of choice. Mm -hmm. um, porn might be your drug of choice. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of guys that that's their drug of choice. Yeah. They don't like hire hookers and they, okay. they don't um, go out with escorts and they don't get on the all the apps and find random people to act out with. Sure. They look at porn. Right. Um, there are others that they absolutely do that. And mm -hmm. so that's part of theirs. And, and I've met some who like, that's what they do. And porn just doesn't interest them at all. So, right. you know, there's nuances with all of it. Um, it's all, it is, it's an intimacy disorder. If we were going to mm. give it a name, it's an intimacy disorder. They're really struggling with figuring out how to connect sexually, emotionally, um, vulnerably with the, their partner. Mm. And so they, they use, they're either looking at images on a screen or they're um, in people that they don't really know as a way of trying to get some of those needs met which is all tied back to those attachment wounds that I talked about earlier. Yeah. Would you mind sharing a little bit of your own journey with it? I imagine if you said this was 20 years ago, this is kind of pre-internet. This wasn't an idea. I, I, and I'll say, I remember when I stopped looking at porn myself, which was about six years ago and Good talking job. to guys and they were like, why the fuck did you do that? <laughs> Everybody looks at porn. And I was like, Okay, um, but I don't. Just like when I quit drinking, people are like, "Why the hell are you doing this?" Every everybody drinks. Like, well, okay, sure. What was it like for you back before this was? There were TED talks on it, and there were guys on have talking about it on podcasts and people talking about it on social media. How did you come to the realization that this was an addiction and not just like you being a dude? So. Um, I, when I was a teenager, I didn't have access to, I mean, the internet hadn't been created yet. So, um, I was addicted to masturbation. Mm -hmm. Um, that was my way of self-soothing. Mm -hmm. So, I, um, it might help if I like, so there's six attachment wounds, okay. there's loss, neglect, rejection, abandonment, betrayal, and abuse. And um, sorry, Troy, would you mind just reading those one more time a little bit slowly? Just so guys, I think some people's wheels are spinning. Yeah, sure. So loss 
and it, it, maybe it'll help if I define them a little bit. Sure. Loss is loss is like what happens just because we live in this planet. So loss could be a loss of a loved one because they died. It could be um, I wasn't I wasn't personally, but like I was a military brat, and so I had to move every three years, and so I lost my friends every three years, mm. or my best friend moved. Like that kind of stuff, where nobody really did it to you, but you lost things. Like life happened. happened. Yeah. Right. But and that can be really painful for people. Yeah. Neglect. I mean, there's definitely like the child protective ver- uh, services version of neglect, where mom and dad haven't fed the kids for three days and whatever. For a lot of us, that's not the kind of neglect that we've encountered. Mom and dad provided food and shelter, but they never provided the the time and attention that you actually needed. Mm-hmm. And so, when you were in distress you didn't have anybody to go to. And so that's neglect. Mm -hmm. Like, so the kid had to figure out how to do it by themselves. Rejection is when you're being told by others that you're not enough, that there's something wrong with you. Many of us experienced bullying and those kind of things growing up. And so that, that wound of rejection, being told that I'm less than by other people. Abandonment, people walking out of your life they were there one moment and then they're gone the next and you don't understand why they are gone. There's no explanation. Betrayal, when somebody has done something that's violated that trust in your life, um, they've cheated on you, they've lied to you, taking credit for something that you've done, or abuse. We're talking like sexual abuse, physical abuse, those kind of, those wounds, especially as they're, uh, as kids, can have a really lasting, devastating effect in our lives, mostly because we don't quite understand why they're happening. And so as kids, with our lack of cognitive ability to understand that, wonder why that's happening. And the only explanation we can come up with is, well, it must be because of me. I must be flawed. I must be defective. There must be something wrong with me. Mm. So the, the traumas happen, and then a core belief gets like woven into that and that becomes the operating system by which we live our life until we can change the operating system so growing up yeah so growing up i um i very much had uh an abuse wound i i was adopted at birth so i have an abandonment wound and i have a rejection wound those were pretty painful parts of my life and so when I discovered masturbation at the age of 14 years old, I figured out, wow, that is a really nice way of taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. But it felt really good, but almost immediately. And my parents didn't really talk to me about sex. Most parents don't really talk to their kids about sex. I think I can count on one hand the number of times my parents talked to me on sex. But almost immediately, I felt like that wasn't something I should be doing. I don't have any moral judgment around whether somebody else does that. But for me, it didn't feel right. And so immediately there was this like shame component that was very much part of this behavior, which I very much became attached to. The behavior felt good and then I felt shame. And then the behavior felt good and then I felt shame. And always trying to stop and didn't understand like what was going on was I was trying to like take care of this pain in a way that doesn't actually take care of pain. I mean, it lasts for like 30 seconds and then, you know, whatever. Um, and so then it doesn't go away. As I got older and then the internet was created and my I was 
found out you could look at porn, man, that really expanded the addiction mm -hmm. and the shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, so feeling a whole lot more shitty about things. And then I got married. <laughs> I didn't tell my I didn't tell my partner about that. I kept it a secret. She found out about it later on. So talk about like wounding her. And so this dynamic of not telling her because I'm ashamed and mm. like, and oh, it just gets really freaking messy through all of that um, in an attempt to try and just like contain the pain that was going on, which never worked. Right. Um, and the whole time what's happening in my brain as I'm developing a neural network that teaches me that when I'm in pain, this is how I relieve the pain. Mm. So I, I'm literally connect, creating a neural network in my brain that says this is how I manage pain. And that's what the addiction is. That then whenever I'm in distress, whenever I feel like somebody's rejected me or abandoned me or neglected me my brain's like well i know what i can do about that and whoosh, there i go and then shame is absolutely a part of that it's it's i can expect that to be part of of what it is and the re the irony is pornography never abandons me it never rejects me it never betrays me well technically it does but you know it never neglects me it will always be there Sure. And so it's a counterfeit for me trying to actually get my needs met. Mm. I hope guys who heard that just went, oh, wow. Okay. It makes so much more sense to me. Why? Hey man, you just need to get some discipline. You just need some willpower here. Uh, goes out the window. If, mm -hmm. if I could bring you back with one question that popped sure. in my head, I believe you said you also got addicted to the masturbation and shame cycle. Yes. Can you talk about how we get addicted to a cycle, especially one that has something that's as uncomfortable as shame? I could see if you were like, yeah, I, I got addicted to the masturbation release feel better cycle. But to say I got addicted to the whole cycle, I would love for you to expand upon for the listeners. One of our, one of our core needs, uh, Tony Robbins identifies that one of our core needs is um, I use the softer word of assurance, mm -hmm. but he uses certainty. Certainty, yeah. Um, one of the core needs is certainty. We, right. And especially when you think about our wounds of neglect and rejection and all that, and that uncertainty, like, is somebody going to show up for me? Mm. Am I going to be accepted? Am I going to be loved? Like, there's an uncertainty around that. And so we are we are looking for certainty. Well, guess what? When I look at porn, I am certain that I'm going to have an orgasm. And I'm also certain that shame is going to follow. Mm -hmm. There is a certainty that comes with that. And so even though it sucks mm -hmm. and I don't want it, I know for certain that it's coming. I can count on that. Yep. So when my life feels like it is out of whack and it feels like I uncertain in every other aspect, I don't know if my marriage is going to last. I don't know if I'm going to keep this job. I don't know if I'm going to do really well. I know for certain I'm going to have an orgasm and I'm going to feel like shit afterwards. Wow. It's that's it's thank you. I really appreciate that. It makes sense. And yet I kind of have to wrap my head around the, like, wait a minute, I'm addicted to feeling like shit. You're like, yep. Cause it's certainty. You're more addicted to the certainty than you are the feeling like shit. Uh, that makes so much sense. Right. Okay. 
for, for guys listening to this who are again going, bro, everybody jerks off to porn. First of all, like calm down. Let's let you two calm down up there. Can you speak a bit about for, for just in your professional opinion, when does this shift from, Hey, you know what? First time in three months, your partner's out of town, you're traveling, you're in a hotel room, you're horny, you know, you feel like jerking off, you do it from, from that end of the spectrum to, you know, I'm skipping work today because I'm going to stay home and jerk off. Where is, where do, where do we plant the addiction flag or the flag for a guy to go, Hey man, this is something you may want to look at. That's a great question. So the definition that I use for addiction is using any substance or any behavior to numb pain. So I'm going to break it down into a little bit. Okay. So all of us use substances and behaviors to numb pain, whether it's, you know, food, chocolate, you know, whatever. So using any behavior or any substance to numb pain, that's the first part. All of us do that. That cannot be stopped. Mm. Even when it starts to cause us some serious consequences in our life and our life begins to fall apart. So even though I know that I'm on a government computer and I'm probably going to get fired if I look at this inappropriate material, I look at it anyway. Mm -hmm. Even though I know that my wife has told me that, hey, if you look at porn again, I'm out of here. I do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Even though I know like this is going to cause me problems, I do it anyway. I can't seem to stop. That's when it becomes an addiction. You know, so a lot of guys will say, I can stop anytime. Great. Um, you know, but we're, we're using it to numb pain. And is it causing problems in your life? Yeah. Um, and, and even though you know that you're keeping, you're continuing to do that. Yeah. That is how I would constitute that as an addiction. Awesome. It's super helpful. All right, folks. You're loving this. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, right? He is diving into so much juicy stuff. Quick reminder, check out the sponsors at Zen Squatch on Instagram, Z-E-N-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H and at Cured Nutrition on Instagram. Please shoot them a DM. Just say, hey, heard about you on the Uncivilized podcast. Love that you're supporting Traver. Looking forward to diving into your products. Check them out. It's all I ask. All right, back to Troy. Troy, I want to put myself in the guy listening who says, okay, man, so what? Like I got fired from a couple of jobs. I did the thing, all, all that you're talking about, my, my wife's pissed, but I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not in pain. I get up, <laughs> go to the gym. I go to my job. Like ask me right now, go ahead, stop and ask me, am I in pain? I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to check in. And I'm going to say, you guys are crazy. I'm not in pain. How, how do you address that answer? And I'm just playing a little bit of devil's advocate. With I you. love it. Thank you. I love it. Um, so I ask that question a lot. How many of you have so much peace in your life that there isn't room for more? <laughs> I think I've actually only had one person raise his hand. I think he was smoking some pot. Yeah, he was high as fuck, right? <laughs> <laughs> because nobody else raises their hand. That's a says, great question. Oh, I'm such a I'm such a question dork. That like I'm stealing that question. I will I will right. you, but that's a great question. Awesome. <laughs> so if you're not at peace, what is causing you to not be at peace? And to me, peace is a part of a yin and yang, right? Mm-hmm. The other side is pain. Right. Um, and I listened to part of your TED talk and I, I've heard some of the pain you've had to go through and mm-hmm. you've learned a lot through that. 
um, pain is a part of life, right? Mm-hmm. It's part of what we deal with. I don't, um, I don't know how you cannot live in the world we live in and not have wounds of rejection, abandonment, betrayal, loss. Like, I I don't know how you could live in a world and not have some of those. Mm -hmm. The idea is how do we live in a world where we we have that pain and experience peace, Mm. yin and yang kind of, a yin and yang kind of philosophy, rather than living in denial and pretending that we're not in pain because that doesn't do any good. In that denial, we end up causing more suffering yeah. for ourselves and the people around us. We recognize, I don't want you to be caught up and like continue to live in this perpetual, like I'm, I'm rejected and I'm abandoned. That's not sure. the point. Sure. It's, if the point is like recognize we have wounds, let's do some wound care around that and heal and move on with our freaking life. Um, but don't deny that um, because it's uncomfortable to look at. Thank you. I think that's super helpful for, for people who just don't have like a embodied, like I'm touching myself. Like I'm not in pain, man. I, I, my, I love my wife. I love my kids. My job's okay, but man, I just can't kick this habit. How, how do you get men to draw, especially men, but I'd say people, but especially men to drop down to where they have access to that pain. Um, so one of, if they were open to it, the workbook I have, the Finding Peace workbook, the very first chapter is the 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 wound assessment. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people just fill that out. They don't think they have any wounds. And by the time they're done, they're like, like a blubbery mess on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> There's a warning at the front, like, be careful, take your time. And they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I had it. So that's one way. Yeah. But, but seriously, like, Taking taking an inventory of your relationship with your your wife, your kids, like, um, are are you pretending, mm. or are you really happy? Mm. Are you are you able to be open, absolutely open and transparent? Are you being honest with your wife? And I get that some relationships, the wife doesn't care that the husband is looking at porn. The wife sometimes is looking at porn too. I get that. Sure. But that's not, uh, there's a lot more wives I've met who just, that's not cool with them. Like, um, and so are you a, like, if are you keeping secrets? Right. Are you, are you hiding some things? Yeah. Are you able to actually be open? Are you able to share your emotions and talk? And be open and honest and transparent with your wife in a productive way. Are you holding back mm-hmm. um, and uh, not asking to be soft and whamsy whamsy like? But are you are you being open? And if you're not being open, what's that all about? Can yeah. you do an inventory of your life and figure out what are you holding back from? And I would propose that it's probably connected to some pain or some sense of shame. Yeah that you're holding back from. Yeah, that's really powerful. When I, when I talk to guys about porn who are in relationship, they say what's probably more problematic if it's a secret is that you have a secret. Absolutely. Again, the modality is irrelevant and it's it seems to help guys and maybe this will help anybody listening. Uh, if you were hiding alcohol, 
would you feel like that was a bigger deal in your relationship if you know your your wife's out and so you slam a six pack and you you, you and I, I remember I used to do this and then go hide it at the bottom of the recycling bin. Right. Is that worse than you know you looked at a couple an hour of porn? And they're like, oh, but drinking's different. Let's let's if I just hit on that subject. How have we or or how do you address the normalization? of addiction, uh, uh, the normalization of functional addiction as a way to happily get through life. As I take a snapshot of the American culture and go, wow, there's beer commercials. Like there's, there's alcohol is, is, I don't care if people drink, but man, let's be honest about it. It's, it's not that healthy for most people. It's in the vast majority of sexual violence, domestic violence, every DUI, a lot of car accident, a lot of shit. And, and yet we're still cool with Bud Light sponsoring the Super Bowl and rah, rah, go. And, and same in culture where guys are like, you know, jerking off. You know how I stay in my marriage? I jerk off to a lot of porn. You know how I stay in this business? I blow a couple lines of Coke on a Friday night. Like, who the fuck are you to tell me that I can't have this thing in order to get through life? Like, who, who the hell are you? How would you address the normalization of addiction as a coping mechanism? Well, you just look at society. We are the most addicted, in debt, obese, medicated cohort that has ever existed in the entire history of the world. Like, Mm. we have children who are dying before their parents because of obesity. Like, we are numbing in all kinds of ways. Yeah. And... And part of it is the media, like, you know, the media, I'm not blaming the media per se, but that the advertising to blame the media. Okay. You, <laughs> Fuck the media. <laughs> Are you going to want to delete that? This <laughs> <laughs> is a long coughing fit in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> um, but if you think about the, and so there's this, there is this epidemic of numbing in all all kinds of ways on one hand and then the the normalcy of it on the other Mm -hmm. i don't have it's not my job to tell you that you should or shouldn't do anything i'm not your i'm not the moral police i'm not you know i'm not your religious pastor whatever i'm not here to tell you what you should and shouldn't do that's between you and and you and um your higher power if you have one um what i'm looking at is like what are the consequences of that numbing and here's the deal when you numb pain if you if you have to do a line of coke just to make it through the weekend or if you have to you have to jerk off just to stay in your marriage what else are you numbing because you you can't selectively numb emotion the research around Brene brown stuff you can't selectively numb emotion right if you if you numb joy I mean, if you're numbing pain, you're numbing joy, you're numbing happiness, you're numbing all the the wonderful stuff too. Mm. So when we're numbing, we're numbing. Right. And then what would it be like to be married to or have a relationship with someone who's numb all the time? Yeah. It's such an important point. Thank you for bringing it. It's such an important point. I I say is anybody who has dealt with addiction says like, trust me, I've tried. I tried to just selectively numb. These are the three things I don't want to feel. And like, yeah. you don't get to, <laughs> it's, it's not a menu. Uh, no. I think that's super important. 
if, if we switch now to the other side and a big thing that you talk about so much is peace, what role does peace play in the recovery process? And why are we so, why do we have such an aversion to it? Why are we not seeking it in the same ways we seek escapism, addiction, and numbing, in your opinion? I think in part it's scary because there are moments when a guy actually can get a glimpse of his true, authentic, real self. And man, he is powerful. He's a powerful guy. He has talents and abilities and light and there's a magnificence around him. And that scares him because that is going to require him to make some changes in his life that he might not be prepared to make. Mm. Um, one more sentence about that, please. Is it the fear of change? Is it the fear of the of holding and not losing that power? Like, What's the root of that fear, in your opinion? I think it is the fear of loss. That he's going to get it and then not have it later? That or what looking around at what he has now and when he changes he might have to say goodbye to some things that he currently has now yep that on the other hand uh, when he gets to the other side he will realize like i'm you know i'm glad i was able to say goodbye to that but the like we're attached to that like mm -hmm. we hold on to that so deeply that i can't let that go like i know this isn't serving me i know this is not helping me but it, it, this I can hold on to. That on the other side, I don't know what that is yet. So that unknown, that uncertainty, I don't know. And so I will hold on to what I know instead of letting it go. And so we stay in patterns and behaviors for fear, even though we can get glimpses. And I think that's what it is. We get glimpses of the powerful guy that we can become. Power not like like in yeah. the domination, but power, like that noble spirit inside who can make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, and it freaks us out. I speak for me, freaks yeah. me out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I hold myself back sometimes. Mm. Try do, can you speak, this just popped in my head, on the relationship between secure attachment and peace, given that you've talked about attachment wounds and pain and addiction. Is a secure attachment a requirement to experience long-lasting peace? No. Okay. So we have attachment styles. Mm -hmm. so we have an anxious, uh, some of us have an anxious attachment style, which is we become very clingy and needy. Why are we so needy? Well, because we have a lot of unmet needs and we're really afraid that you're going to leave. And so we become very clingy. And then there's the avoidant side where it's like, I'm going to pretend that I don't have any of those needs and I'm going to stand over here and just be right there. Um, the bottom line is we still have those needs um, and we have those attachment styles as a coping mechanism for some of the way that we experience life. But if we're able to talk about it mm. and share that in a vulnerable way, that actually helps shift our attachment style to come to a sense of peace. 
Um, and so if I'm, I, I have an anxious attachment style, but I'm able to say, I'm feeling really anxious right now. I'm like feeling really overwhelmed. And I, I have this fear. I know it's crazy, but I have this fear. And I'm able to share that. And the other person's like, I get you. I'm right here. Mm. Whew, that can calm some stuff down. And I can get to a place of peace because I was able to, to say the truth. I didn't lie about it. I didn't keep it a secret. I didn't pretend. Um, I was able to step in and ask for what I needed. And the chances of you getting your needs met when you actually ask for them are pretty amazing. Um, a whole lot better. <laughs> it goes up significantly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, weird. You know, yeah, so weird. Um, then, um, then not. So it, your attachment styles, you don't have to be ashamed of that. I mean, you just recognize like, like that comes from a place of hurt. Mm. So talk about your hurt. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit to your own journey to the other side and then what has, what got you to peace and what have you had to do to keep peace in the forefront and not drift back into a state of numb or addiction? So one of the biggest things that I've uh, learned is how shame hijacks peace. And there's a big piece and, um, we can go into that if you want. Yes, please. Um, but shame hijacks peace more than anything else. And so, yeah, I have these attachment wounds. Everybody does. And those core beliefs that get bubbled up from time to time. But what hijacks my ability to actually get connection is the shame. And Brene Brown's definition of shame is a deep and abiding belief and feeling that I'm flawed and defective and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And what I've done and what you can learn about in the book is I personified shame and created six different archetypes of shame that are all like the voices in my head that are talking to me. And they all show up and do different things as a way of trying to help me, but they're all shame-based. And if they are running my life, they absolutely will ruin it. Mm. So when I'm able to confront them and figure out what they're doing and develop some resiliency and manage them, I can get to the other side and I can stay in that peace and I can actually get the connections that I need. Mm -hmm. I can reach out, ask for, get my needs met. Mm -hmm. whether from others or from myself in a healthy way. And then I'm able to stay in peace. If I don't, man, my peace is sabotaged. Yeah. I'm in a hole. It's crap. Um, <laughs> and then my judge, that's the first shadow of shame. I just mm -hmm. like, you're not even living what you preaching, brother. Like mm -hmm. what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, uh, I suck. So that's, you know, it's learning how to manage them. is a huge part of okay. being able to stay in the peace. Okay. Can you speak a little bit? Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Just to, to kind of wrap up a bit, your initial statements were, this is all about connection. For guys, especially listening to this, or guys who may say, cool, I'd love to have connection. I'm in Australia in a lockdown. Or someone who even may be in, in, in open, the almost open place on earth, but is like, I just don't know where to start. I don't have a lot of friends. I don't have a lot of people in my life. And you know what? Like relationships are complicated. H how does someone begin to, like, what's Connection 101 for you? Uh, first, I feel your pain, brother. I live in you, Arizona. 
<laughs> you will catch fire if you go outside. <laughs> so, first is recognizing that shame's going to hijack that. Um, shame is going to tell you you're not worthy of having connection and that there's something freaking wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And, and if you listen to that uh, voice and you buy into it, you're not going to reach out. So I hear that. And then the second voice and that the second voice that's talking, so that's the judge, by the way, who's telling you, you suck. The second voice is the impotent one. Mm. And the impotent one says that you're never going to mm. get connection. I don't even know why you're bothering trying. Mm. So as you give me those two examples, you know, somebody's living out and uh, you're never going to get connection. I don't even know why you're bothering. It's just going to be awful. It's just like, it's just, it's just like, those two voices are going to hijack that. So I got, I got a buddy up in Phoenix who's like always telling me, come on, dude, you got to reach out some more. You got to reach out some more. Yeah. Okay. What do you like to do for fun? Are there, are there groups that are happening in your community that do what you like to do? Um, there's apps. Like I will tell you, there's a meetup meet up app. Mm-hmm. There's one group in Yuma, so I get your pain if there if you live in a place <laughs> where there's no meetup groups. I get that, but um, um, but what do you like to do for fun? Is there some place you can go where those people do that? If not, can you um, can you get? I I know that like online isn't great, but it's better than nothing. Is there a way that you could reach out to a group of people that do have some of your same passions, some things that you like? Start to reach out to them. Some of the ways that I have met friends is I jumped onto like a just like a a, a group that was meeting and just like started reaching out and say, "Hey, how are you? What's mm-hmm. your name? Where are you from?" Mm-hmm. And just started like having a conversation, asking them a little bit about them, and then them about me, and then we build friendships that way. Yeah. So it it takes it is uncomfortable. I don't know what it is, but you probably can speak to that better than I can as, as far as why men don't do that. It's uncomfortable. I think it's shame-based. Some guys do it really well. Yeah. But it's stepping into that courage and confronting those shadows and saying, hey, look, I am worthy mm-hmm. of having somebody care about me, mm-hmm. um, love on me. I know that's a crazy word to use with men, but seriously, we need love too from other sure. men. Absolutely. Sure. Um, I'm worthy of having some other guy love on me, care about me. Um, celebrate with me i'm worthy of that and so is he so Mm. let me lean into that um let me reach out and try yeah and i might fall flat on my face but let me try again yeah beautiful it's i think the most important thing you've said is you have to try and and one of the challenges to, to answer a bit of your question in return is so many men for so long we didn't have to because we had the office we had the workplace. We had like, oh, all my right. buddies from you know from from the office or the gym. Right. Um, when when I saw those things get shut down or reorganized, so thirty percent of the workforce is now from home or sixty percent. Right. A lot of those guys just don't have the muscle, and I I believe from talking to a lot of them that they actually are expecting. There's there's a, it's, and I don't use this word negatively, but there's an entitlement. Of well, when is this group going to come knock on my door and say like, "Hey, Trevor, come on out. We're going. We're yeah. going snowboarding this weekend." Yeah, it, it, it just doesn't happen that way. No. But I think we can also say that if you're feeling it, there's so many other people in your community, in your circle, in your world 
who are also feeling it. And so with just a little bit of effort, this definitely can happen. You know, I had a, a client, this is maybe two years ago, who was really upset that his friends weren't getting together. And I was like, well, who, who's leading this, this situation? He was like, well, you know, the guy who normally, he's just not doing it. I was like, make a plan, shoot an email out to eight guys. Hey, let's take our sons to the shooting range. Let's do it this weekend. I'm going, who's in? And I remember getting that phone call at like three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And this guy was just so lit up. Oh my we gosh. all went, our kids were playing, the dads, blah, 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 blah. I was like, how did this all start? Like, One email. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It was an email. Send the email. Yep. That's it. That's it. That's right. Troy, I truly appreciate your time and energy and, and really just the lesson that you've given everybody who's listened here for, for men and women who are more interested in getting your book, finding out more about what you do and where you do it. Where can they find you? Where are you hanging out? And do you have anything coming up that you'd love to offer this audience? It's the easiest place to find me is going to TroyLLove.com. And yeah, I have two events that are coming up at the end of September. I have an online workshop that we're doing for those who are still social distancing. And then if everything works out in Texas, we're doing a live finding peace retreat in Palestine, Texas, which is wow. about two hours away from Dallas. It's a four, four day intensive, like in, it's actually pretty awesome uh, um, retreat where we walk you through the entire finding peace process. So mm. we'd love to have you come. So you can learn about the, either of those at TroyLLove.com. Amazing. And then do you have a social media presence that you like people to follow or is there anywhere in particular people can find you there? Yeah. Um, so I'm on Facebook, Instagram, um, same thing, Troy L. Love, um, and Twitter too. Awesome. Thank you so much, brother. I truly appreciate you. You're welcome. And look Trevor. forward to the day I get to meet you in person. Cheers. Yeah, me too, man. Thank you. This is Traver Bohm signing off on another episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please give us a share. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you're interested in getting a hold of my book, Man Uncivilized, whether you're a man or a woman, please go to www.manuncivilized.com forward slash the book and get reading.